We began a series last week called This New Year. This New Year. So we are two weeks into 2018. Two weeks. How is it going for you so far? All right, you only have 50 left. Two weeks down, 50 to go, right? How are you doing? Because here's the thing. Some of you might have made some resolutions or some things you want to change or some things you want to do differently. But how many of you have been intentional about addressing the spirituality of your life? Maybe you want to have a a slimmer waistline, a more healthy way to live, a, a better balanced budget. But have you focused on your spirituality? Because sometimes we, we don't spend a time attending to it, and we wonder why our life looks the same today as it did in 2017. So what we're going to do is in a series is we're looking at things for this new year that we should be doing, applying to our life, that deal with spiritual matters. And we're learning those, those keys from Peter, the apostle of Jesus, in the letter he wrote, 1 Peter. And last week we talked about having a living hope, that this new year I can have a living hope. And if you missed that message, I, I, I just challenge you to, to take an opportunity to, to either get a CD of that message, or um, for those of you who are smart device users and are used to using podcasts, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. Right now our website message player is not working correctly. We can't upload new messages to it. Uh, we're not sure why, but if you want to get those messages digitally to you, you'll have to subscribe through a podcasting service. If you don't know what that is, talk to your grandkids. Um, but make sure you get a chance to, to connect with, with that. I have a living hope. And, and our, our big thought last week was basically this. I have a living hope because a living Savior holds my future. As you think about 2018 and the 50 weeks that are left, you can look at those weeks hope-filled because there's a Savior, a living Savior who holds your future. He has plans for you. And this could be the greatest year of your life if we begin to take a look at the things in our life that we know God wants to address and bring under his lordship. So if we really have a living hope, like we talked about last week, then what difference should that living hope have in the way that we live out our lives before God and before people around us? In fact, how how are we to live before God within the context of our world before our fellow men? If we say we have this living hope, should something be different? And before we jump to what Peter has to say, John speaks to this in one of his letters. In fact, it's 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. And if you're using uh, the smart devices, all of these verses are there if you have the Bible app, or you can download notes from our website, albanync.org, and uh, there are notes available for you. There's a lot of passages today, so you're going to either get writer's cramp or you just need to download this stuff. But in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, this is what John says, John the beloved disciple, all who have this hope, what, what is this hope? It's that living hope. Okay, that we talked about last week. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Here's what this means. There is something about having a living hope that impacts the way you live your life. In fact, you could say it this way. A living hope should lead to holy living. Okay? A living hope should lead to holy living. But here's the thing. What do you think about when you hear the word holy or holiness? You know, as I was preparing for this message, I I had my own thoughts that I kind of grew up having a certain viewpoint about holy and about holiness. And for some of you, when you think about holy or holiness, perhaps what comes to your mind is perhaps it conjures up feelings of inadequacy that you've just never been good enough. For others, maybe it brought up feelings of judgment and shame from those who looked down their noses at you because they were holier than thou. Or perhaps for some, when you think about holy, it causes you to think of, of these old, dusty, religious things that don't really apply for today, like holiness is kind of something of the old days and not really for today. And so you just view it as kind of outdated, shelved material, but not relevant or practical for today. Or for others, when you think about holiness, maybe you think about a previous church experience where you had these people who kind of guarded holy living with a bunch of do's and don'ts. And maybe that was your religious heritage. You grew up in a very strict religious environment where you were told specifically what you could do and what you shouldn't do, and it was more heavy on the what you shouldn't do than ever on what you should do. 
So when we think about holy, I know that we all come to this word from a different perspective and from a different context. And when it comes to holiness, we usually don't have a problem singing about it as it pertains to God. In fact, there's something about singing about God's holiness that inspires worship in your heart. In fact, if we were to have Carissa lead the great hymn of the church, Holy, 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 many of you would be up on your feet, raising your hands because it inspires worship when we think about the holiness of God. But when, when that scope of holiness is turned toward you and your life and your character, we don't often feel like singing. In fact, it's often a very different story. But does it have to be that way? Does it have to be that way? Do we we have to look at holiness as this unachievable, impossible call? No, I don't think we have to. And this morning, I wanted to take a look at 1 Peter and discover that this year, this new year, I can be holy. This new year, I can be holy. Now, as we approach this kind of topic, I just got to say from the front end, I am not an expert on holiness, okay? In fact, in the medical term, they have, a, they have a term they use called practicing medicine, okay? They're often called what? Medical practitioners because it is a practice. It's something that is continuing, hopefully to improve, but it is a practice. And when it comes to this topic of holiness, I can tell you this. I'm a practitioner, but I am not a professional, all right? I have not said, I have arrived at holiness. Look at me, for I am the extreme example of holiness. I would never do that. And so when we talk about holiness today, I'm not looking down my nose at you saying, I've got this better than you do. All right? So as we go into this topic, it's not I'm speaking from years and years of practical, professional experience in holiness. I'm a practitioner like you. But I want to tell you this is an important topic. And so as we come to this topic of holiness, do me a favor just for this next few moments and just put aside what has been your view of holy and holiness. Just put it aside. Maybe you've you've tried this and and, and you've failed. Just put that aside for a moment. Because I want to deal with what the Bible shows us about this idea of holiness. So open your hearts. Put aside your preconceived ideas about a message called, I can be holy, because that just sounds like, here we go, he's going to give us 100 ways, or maybe better, 2,018 ways to be holy in 2018, okay? That is not what I'm going to do. I'm going to open the Bible and take an honest look at what a practitioner has to say about being holy, because there's a great need in each of us who call ourselves Christian to take seriously the call to live holy lives. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter gives us some keys. So open your Bibles or, or pop open your smart devices, use the Bible app, and go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And what you're going to notice is the context of where we're going next, all right? Anytime you come to a Bible uh, study and a word like therefore, if a paragraph begins with therefore, the general rule of principle is find out what the therefore is there for, okay? So why is it there? And so when he says, therefore, he's connecting this thought to what he's already established. So because we have a living hope, because we have been made new in Christ Jesus, okay, therefore, now he's giving us something that we need to think about. He's established the foundation, you're new, you have a living hope. Therefore, here we go, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Christ Jesus is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, let's put this not only in context with where the verses that were around it, but let's put this in the context of the life of Peter. Remember Peter? Peter's the one who wrote this. Peter is the most relatable of the apostles to us because when we look at Peter's life throughout the Gospels, it wasn't airbrushed to make him look like he was an absolute saint. We saw the blemishes. We saw the pimples. We saw the failures of Peter. And when we're introduced in the Gospels to Peter, there's this unique event that we have to pay attention to as it comes to Peter later talking about holiness, okay? And here it is. 
Jesus comes to the shore. People are gathered to hear this new rabbi teach. They're attracted to Jesus because he he's, he's just different. He has a different message, and, he's, and people love him. And so they're, they're flocking to Jesus. And one day, a, a large crowd is gathering. And, and so he, he, he taps Peter on the shoulder and says, hey, I need to use your boat for a floating pulpit. And so he, he gets in the boat of Peter. They push off. And out on the water, Jesus preaches to the crowd. And after he's done preaching, he tells Peter to toss the nets in for a catch. And it's a miraculous catch. I mean, they, they had never seen a catch like this, and they are professional fishermen. And, and there's this little conversation between Peter and Jesus. Because in that moment, in the boat with Jesus, Peter discovers something about himself. And this is what he says. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. In other words, I am unholy. I've come into the contact with such a perfect picture of holiness, and I know what I am not. I am unholy. I'm a sinner. And so it's this Peter, okay? It's that guy who knew what he was in the context of Jesus. He knew he was unholy. He knew he was a sinner. And he's the one now after he has come to know and put his trust in Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit has filled his life, has brought transformation to him. He's now the one talking to us about being holy. So if anybody sounds like a practitioner, it's Peter. He's been there. He's been the guy who said, God, I'm unholy. Depart from me. So when we look at this, don't think this is some impossible accomplishment because this is Peter's story. Right? And so he gives us some keys in this passage as we consider this idea of holiness. And I'm going to give them to you, hopefully, rather quickly. The first one is mind your mind. Mind your mind. He says in verse 13, with minds that are alert. The Greek word actually that's used is to gird up the loins of your mind. Now, some of you are going, I haven't, I haven't got a clue what that means. Some of you have never girded your loins, nor do you even want to think about what that might mean. All right? But here's what it basically meant. In, in, in the example of biblical times, when somebody was going to gird their loins, it meant that men and women alike wore robes of sort, okay? And for a man to run, it was very hard to run in the tunic or the, or, or the dress, if you want to call it that, that they wore. So they would take their garments and they would tuck them into their belts, and that was called girding up their loins. Um, so what it would look like is they would grab it all, shove it in the front of their belt. It would look like a big diaper. That's what it would look like, roughly. It was like a big diaper. And then they would have mobility to run or to respond. Okay? And so when he's talking about this idea of girding up the loins of your mind, it has to do with being ready, being alert for whatever is coming. Okay? The way we might say it today is roll up the sleeves of your mind because it's time to get busy. Or for those of you who are more athletic, it might be this idea of it's time to take off the warm-up suit, it's time to take off the sweats, and get ready for the game, all right? So what he's saying is you've got to take initiative to prepare your mind for a life of holiness. Now, I want you to hear this carefully with me. I know that holiness is a product of new birth and a living hope. Peter's already established that. The Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within us. We are made new. I get that. So don't, don't miss the point here. I understand the work of the Holy Spirit, but here's something we have to understand. Holy living begins really with our minds. With our minds. Our minds must be holy if our behavior is to be holy. But here's the problem. Our brains weren't switched at salvation. Don't you wish they were? Don't you wish that, that at conversion there was kind of like this holy hand that came and cracked open the top of your cranium, took out your brain, and put in a new one? Wouldn't we just love that? Like a total system upgrade, total different operating system. You thought about stuff differently. You saw things differently. Everything was different. The way you made decisions was different. But that didn't happen. At salvation, you were not brainwashed. All right? So this is why we have the challenge in Scripture of what to do with our minds. And, and Paul says it this way, that our minds are to be renewed. There's to be a renewing of your minds. Look at it in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. So conform means to take shape, to be, to be under its rule. He's saying don't do that, but be transformed, okay, be otherly. By how? By the renewing of your mind. 
okay? It wasn't like your mind was renewed and it's done. This is a daily process, the renewing of your mind. We're going to talk more about that here in a moment. He goes on to say why in Romans 12, 2. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. What is His will? That we would live holy lives, that we would follow His mission. How's it going to happen? By a renewing of our mind. And so minding your mind requires a new mindset. Minding your mind requires not a new brain, but a new mindset. So we have to think differently. We have to look at how we make our decisions a bit different. We have to have a, a different perspective. And that's what, again, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. He says this, to set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Okay, There's this, so what does this sound like? This sounds very intentional, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like it's just going to happen kind of automatically. There's this idea of setting my mind on things above. Here's the problem. Too many of us have our minds set on earthly things. We have earthly concerns. We live in the world. Our minds are focused on the world, and we deal with this. Our mind is set in the wrong place, and he says, no, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. In fact, it was this that, that, that Jesus confronted Peter about. See, Peter would know this as well. Because there was that time that Jesus was talking about, I'm, look, friends, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Here's what's going to happen to me. And Peter basically says, no way, Lord, never. And what does Jesus do? He confronts him. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. This was confronted even in Peter. And Jesus was saying, look, Peter, my mind is not set here where your mind is set. My mind is set on my Father's will, on things above. Because even though I am bodily in this place, my mind is set above on the things that God wants me to do. But it takes intention. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 says it this way, that those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. So if you find yourself continuing to wrestle with issues of the flesh, yielding to, to passions and temptations, and here's what you have to understand, that has been where your mind is set. Okay? You, you might have come to the altar, you, you might have confessed Christ as Lord, but if your mind is set on earthly or passionate or fleshly things, then that is what you're going to do. But he goes on to say this, but those who, who live in accordance with the Spirit, setting our minds on things really above, right, have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. Do you see what this is implying? Your thought patterns, your way of thinking reveals your mindset, and then your mindset determines your conduct. If you have your mindset on the flesh, then you will live according to the flesh. And many of us wrestle with this issue. If your mind is set on the Spirit and the things above, and you're saying, God, I know there needs to be a renewing of my mind, a way of thinking different than it was before I became saved. I'm not going to make decisions based on my feelings or my passions. I'm setting my mind on you and your character, and your conduct, when I set my mind on the Spirit, then I live according to the Spirit. And what this shows us is our thought patterns reveal our mindset, and our mindset determines your conduct. So if you don't like your current conduct, or if people around you say, we don't like your current conduct, maybe you don't see it in yourself, but maybe others are seeing it, and if you don't like your current conduct, then you need to mind your mind. Is your mind alert, or has it been lulled to sleep through just routine behaviors, giving into the flesh all the time, living as though the earth has mastery over you? I don't have it on the screens for you, but just write down 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. This is a verse I think is good to commit to memory. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. Listen, it says that, this is Paul, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What does this sound like? This is a day-to-day -day struggle. Thoughts come into your mind by the thousands. And what this is challenging us is to mind your mind, pay attention to what's coming in. And there are times you got to kind of go, whoop, thought, that thought 
is not going to have a place in my mind today. I'm going to take that thought. I'm going to put it in chains. I'm going to strap it to the wall because it is a captive to the submission of Christ's will over my life. I'm not going to linger in that thought. But here's the deal. We don't often do that. We don't put a gate or we don't put a, a guard on what comes in and out of our minds. And so what happens? We think about it. We linger on that thought. It leads to a conduct that we don't like. What's happened? We've set our minds on earthly things. But when thoughts come into your mind, you've got to, for a while, you've got to kind of play guard. Take them captive and go, nope, that's not going to happen. It's like you're working an assembly line, and when a piece of equipment comes by that's, that's not proper, you've got to stop it, pull it out, and pull it aside. Or it's going to ruin the whole thing, right? That's the way thoughts come. They come into your mind. There are thoughts that are going to take you down if you let them have place. Take them captive. Mind your mind. And he goes on to say minds that are alert and minds that are sober. <laughs> you ever thought about that? Some of you know what it means to be not sober, okay? You've all had an experience maybe with, with some intoxicant. You know what it feels like to not be sober. But what he's saying is, is your mind sober? Is it aware? Is it alert? Is it in control? Or is it under the influence of an intoxicant? Because friends, every day you're going to be faced with thoughts that will come in as intoxicants that will bring you under their influence, a thought that will lead you to a, a, a sexual, sexually depraved action, thoughts that might lead you to an act of hatred or violence. Every day, thoughts are coming into our minds. Is it intoxicant? If it is, take that captive. It's not going to have a place because I'm going to have a sober mind. I'm not going to live under the influence of these earthly thoughts. I'm going to be sober-minded. So mind your mind. He also tells us this, to discern your desires, verse 14, discern your desires. We see it in 1 Peter 1, 14. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. What's Peter assuming? That you're obedient children. He's talking to Christians. Okay, this letter is written to Christians. He's saying, as obedient children, it's implied. It's not like it's an option. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Now, here's the thing. I'm a parent. I have kids. Many of you can relate to this. You're a parent. You've had kids. We want them to obey, right? And there's some reasons why. Yeah, we want to have a good life, but we also know selfishly we don't want them to make us look bad, all right? And, and, and selfishly, we, we, we kind of want some of our character and conduct that we think is good to be instilled in them. So we want to help them to obey so that the good in us can become the good in them. So we do that as parents. We, we go through this rule of discipline and things that we do so that our kids' conduct will be obedient and they'll kind of take on our character, right? The father is saying the same thing, but in a way different way. You're obedient children. I want you to reflect my character. I want you to, to, to live up to my name. So you need to not conform to the evil desires. The life of holiness is predicated upon a lifestyle of active obedience. In fact, Jesus said, you want to be my follower. You want to be a Christian. You take up your cross. You deny yourself you follow me. In fact, those who love me are actually the people who obey me. And here's the thing. You are always obeying something or someone. You're always obeying something or someone. It's either your own desires, or maybe it's somebody else's desires, or maybe it's what God desires for you. But the truth is, for everything you do, you're obeying something. Right? We're, we're, we're not just mindless people. There are motivations for what we do. You're always obeying something or someone. And it's these desires, either the desires to do what God wants or the desires of what we want to do, these are at war within us. You ever felt that war? Some of you feel this war on a daily basis. There's the things you know God desires for you. There's the desires that you have, and they hit in a battlefield. And Peter talks about this, 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll maybe get to it here a little bit later in today's message. But he says this in verse 11 of chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. As Christians, we have a new life. There's a newness within our soul. But those evil desires wage war against our soul. And there is collateral damage. 
There is internal damage when we yield into those desires because they wage war. And here's a very basic thought about this. Obedience reveals our desires. In other words, we generally do or obey what we want to do, which means those are our desires. So obedience reveals our desires. And so that means that you take a look at what you're doing. And by looking at what I'm doing, that obedience of what I'm saying yes to reveals what my desires are. And if it's not a very good outcome, you got to ask, why am I doing this? I'm obeying something because obedience will always reveal our desires. And this is the hard discipline of following Jesus. It really is. And this is the, why I wish we got a new mind. But this calls for discipline. This calls for having minds that are alert and minds that are sober, paying attention to desires that we have. And as long as the sinful nature is at work with us, which it will be until we are set free from these bodies, as long as that sinful nature is at work within you and me that brings up those desires that are contrary to the will of God, as long as those are there, then we need to pay attention to our desires and then bring them into alignment with the will of God. And that's what Galatians talks about. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. You see that? Those are war terms. There's a battle going on within each one of us, between the Spirit and the flesh. And they're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. What that means is you don't give in to those fleshly desires. Don't do just whatever you want because your want to is going to lead you to regrets later and not to a life of holiness, but instead recognize there's a conflict and yield to the Spirit. Both Paul and Peter were quick to warn us not to conform to our former desires that we once lived in when we were ignorant. To conform simply means to, to, to comply with the rules or standards. Okay? So our flesh has its own rules. It says, please yourself, serve yourself, do what feels good. There are rules there. And he says you can't conform to those, to those rules. Instead, we are to yield to the work of the Spirit within us that leads us to a life of holiness. But these natural appetites are always right in front of us. They're always going to be contrary to the way of the Spirit. So we have to recognize there's a conflict going on, and we have to discern our desires. In fact, Ephesians 4.22 says it this way. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, that means like before you came to know Jesus, to put off your old self. Some of you keep putting it back on, right? You were told to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new where? In the attitude of your minds. There it is, that renewing of the mind. And to put on the new self, new desires, new plans, new viewpoint, mindset differently, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So mind your mind. And then discern your desires. Where are these coming from? What's going on? Who am I yielding to. I'm always obeying somebody. And then thirdly, be holy in all you do. Verse 14, or sorry, verse 15 and 16. And this is the part that we go, yeah, right. I'm good with the, everything up to that point, but now it's like, be holy in all you do? Come on, Kelly. That sounds so Old Testament-y. No, this is Peter Leader in the New Testament church speaking these words. Listen, verse 15. But just as he who called you was holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. There's only one who is fully holy, okay? Only one, it's God. And he's calling us to be holy as he is holy. Now, what Peter is quoting is from the book of Leviticus, when God called Israel to be his chosen nation and his chosen people, and he told Israel, you need to be holy as I am holy. And so in doing that, he gave them the commands, he gave them the sacrificial system, and through that, they were to work out their holiness before God as a chosen and separate people. They didn't do a very good job of it. In much the same way that we're really not doing a very good job of living separate as Christians. But he says, be holy as I am. I am holy. So 
What does that look like? What does that mean? How can I know what holiness is when I see it in somebody else? Well, we're going to get there in just a minute. But look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Because this doesn't get us off the hook either. Peter says you got to be holy. Look at what Paul says. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So the mandates before us from Peter and from Paul, be holy, we're to live a holy life. Well, what does that look like? Well, holy means this, holy means to be dedicated or consecrated to God, to be devoted to God. That means that what we do in life always factors in who God is in our life. We're devoted to him. We are consecrated, set apart is what that word basically means. In the Old Testament, they would consecrate tools and utensils to be at work in the temple. They were set apart for God's use. We are to be set apart, devoted to God, and also to be separated from sin. And that's what we see Peter and we also see Paul speaking to. But no wonder we're intimidated by this command because it sounds like, man, how is this possible? How can we be holy as God is holy? Because that would mean we kind of have to be like God. Well, isn't that the point? Isn't that really the point? Isn't that what Peter's after? Isn't that what Paul is after? In fact, I think Peter goes, or Paul says in another place, and I can't recall it right now, but, he, but basically he talks about how our goal is to be Christ-like. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. There's this idea that we are to become Christ-like. And so this idea of holiness could also be used as the word wholeness. Wholeness. That means the same in every environment. Christians are pretty good at acting Christian in certain environments and then not looking very Christian in others. And when he talks about holiness, set-apartness, devoted to God, that means that no matter what context I'm in, the privacy of my home, the public gathering of the church, or the workspace, or recreational space, in all of these places, I am set apart holy to God, and I am honoring Him first above everything else. There's a wholeness that comes with holiness. But don't miss this important thought. Holiness is not just a list of don'ts. It's not just abstaining from. Yes, Peter talks about it. Paul talks about it. There are things that we're to abstain. But I love the way the message translation says these words that Peter had shared with us. I'm going to read them again. This is 1 Peter uh, verses 14 through 16 from the message translation. because I think it captures a beautiful picture. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of like an adventure. Let your life be pulled into the life of God. It's not about stop doing, stop doing, stop doing. It's about put yourself into the life of God. It is an energetic, and it's a life blazing with holiness. There is the thing that God wants to do through us and in us as we put our life into his hands as holy people. And what happens is that our holiness should increasingly replace our natural character. That's what transformation is all about, the birth of the Holy Spirit. We die to our old self, and the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. And there should be a new character and a new mind developing and growing within each one of us. And that displaces our sin and gives us a character of holiness. So what's that mean? That means to be holy is to be different. And I'm going to conclude on this thought. To be holy is to be different, to be different. The root meaning around holy is different. We're to be different, not odd, okay? There's enough odd Christians out there. We're to be different without being absolutely odd. There's something about Christians that that the quality of their life is different. And in essence, what holiness talks about is that it, it, it should have a positive influence. There should be a difference that has a positive influence in our culture. And so this is kind of what I, I, I want to talk about. How do we live holy lives, different lives, in our culture? 
Because our culture doesn't feel very holy, doesn't look very holy, doesn't smell very holy. How do we live holy in culture? There's typically three ways that Christians have reacted to our culture. I don't advise any of these three, so don't even, they're not even worth writing down. But here's what I have seen. I've seen holy Christians attack an unholy culture. They attack them through these little petty slogans that they throw out on Facebook and belittle people who aren't followers of Jesus. And so we attack people. We judge them. We call them out. Can I remind you that in Peter's letter, he wasn't calling out the unbelievers. He wasn't calling out pagans. You know who he was calling out? He was calling out Christians. Okay? So we don't attack. Not a good way to go in an unholy culture. Neither, though, do we acquiesce. Which, which simply means to accept reluctantly, but without protest. So we kind of accept it reluctantly. It's like, okay, I, I get it. I get it. But we don't really, we don't really protest. Not, I'm, and that's in, in a positive way. Okay, I'm not saying protest like have signs that beat people over the head. But there's this sense of acquiescing where it's like, okay, I'm accepting this reluctantly without protest. Or there's the third one, which even kind of goes further, which is to appease, which just means to let it go. Just recognize I'm here. I'm just going to carry out my days in this world. I'm going to try to be holy myself and just try to be good to those who are around me. But what if there was another option that actually was a really good option for us? What if there was a fourth way that we could live holy lives in an unholy culture? And here's the deal. There is one, and again, we take our cues from Jesus, who gives us a great example. Jesus, the Son of God, when he came to earth, get this, his holiness did not attack us. His holiness didn't acquiesce. His holiness didn't appease us. His holiness didn't destroy us, but instead his holiness healed us. Now, let me explain Usually when something clean comes into contact with something unclean, the unclean impacts the clean. So the clean becomes unclean. That's a lot of clean. But let, let me give you an example. It's flu season. Some of you are blessed with the gift of flu. And you knew that when you had the flu, the cure wasn't to surround yourself with healthy people because somehow their health would heal you. No. Generally, when it comes to flu, what do we know? If you put a healthy person in contact with an unhealthy person, the healthy person will undoubtedly become unhealthy, right? But when it came to the way Jesus did this, it was like totally backwards. Here's this holy God, Jesus, God incarnate, who came into the world in his holiness, and yet when he came and walked among us as different, he didn't lose his holiness. Instead, what happened was his holiness healed our unholiness. It's like totally cool that he came incarnate to be with us and that his holiness had a positive influence. What if, friends, what if the holiness of the church had a positive influence in our world today? See, the greatest display of God's holiness was not in him living absolutely separate from us, but God came down, his entering into our sin and our corruption, and he took upon himself that sin, and he put it away forever. He entered our unholiness, but his holiness had a positive influence. Jesus' example was to live a holy life of influence within our world rather than to separate himself from it. That's why when he came, he went right down where people were, and he hung out with sinners and tax collectors, and he wasn't afraid to be with them. It wasn't because somehow they'd impact his holiness. Rather, his holiness would influence their lives. So what is our best response to a world that is increasingly ungodly, even hostile to the standards of living for God and the, the way God has given us in, in the Scripture, Peter goes on to say, let's look at it, First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special 
possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his light. So there's this idea of being different. You're out of darkness into light now. And once you were not a people, so once you were one of those ungodly and holy people, but now you are a people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So he's speaking to, this has been your story, guys. You've been there. You've lived in this world as unholy people, but now you are a people. But look at what he says. So, dear friends, I urge you then as foreigners and exiles, interesting words to use. Because these people were very much a part of their culture. But this is, this is speaking of where their true citizenship comes from. You're living in this world as foreigners and exiles. You're not getting your marching orders from this world. You're here, but you're not of this world. Much like Jesus was here, but he wasn't of this world. He was a foreigner and an exile as he came to be among us. So he goes goes on to say this, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul, as we already saw. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans. Don't go hide off in a castle full of monks and nuns. No. Live such good lives in front of the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong. Now, is the, is the secular culture accusing Christians of doing wrong? You bet they are. You, and some of that we fully deserve because we have been wrong. But there are some things that we do right and we're still going to be accused of doing wrong. But look at this. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Sounds kind of a lot like Jesus. Let your light so shine that they may see your good deeds, good works, and glorify our Father in heaven. What does that mean? There should be something about holiness that is attractive and appealing. So as the church sorry, as the culture becomes increasingly hostile, which we will be dealing with continually. The church must become increasingly holy. Now, I know this doesn't make any sense because here's what happens. As the culture becomes more hostile, typically the response is the church becomes more hostile. Not, not, not the way to go, not the way Jesus went. Okay? As the culture becomes increasingly hostile, the church cannot become increasingly full of hatred. That's not going to work. But as the culture becomes increasingly hostile, the church must become increasingly holy. Why? Our response should never be hatred or hostility. Our responsibility is holy and different, and here's why. While on earth, Jesus was the most different person ever. Is that true? I mean, think about it. He was unlike anybody else, fully God, fully man, came to be in our world. So undifferent, unlike anybody else. But here's the the thing. People loved him. Yeah, he was different, but people loved him. And because of his holy way of living and because of his holy influence, people were attracted to him. I mean, think about it. Who was most attracted to Jesus? Was it the religious people? No, not so much. They had it all figured out. They didn't need Jesus. Who was it? It was the people who were considered unholy marginalized by the church, shoved aside. Those are the ones who were attracted to Jesus. And so holiness needs to always manifest itself in the context of the world in which we live. And it should be done in such a way that when people see it properly, not looking down our nose, judging, hating people, speaking evil of the culture in which we live, trying to politically change it through, through policy. Friends, listen. Holiness among the church, as the culture increases in hostility, so much us in holiness. Why? Because Jesus lived a fully holy life in this world, and people loved him. He had an influence in their life. He was the most different kind of person, but they liked it. In fact, today, if you talk about Jesus to somebody, they'll probably like him. You talk about the church, they'll go, mm, no, no, I don't care for the church, but I love Jesus. Why? Because the church hasn't really become that different. But Jesus really is all the difference in the world. And what the world needs our redemptive aliens who recognize, yeah, I'm living here, but my mind is not here. 
And because of that, my, con- my, my conduct is a bit different. The way I'm, I'm going to treat you is, is in a positively holy way. Because the term church, by the way, refers to those who have been called out. The church is to be a, a gathering of holy aliens, not like in a bad way, okay? But a holy aliens who have embraced their peculiar identity as children of God. And in doing that, they love God and they love people. Why is this important? Because there are spiritual seekers in our community today and in our culture who are looking. They're looking for something different than their life right now. They know that the life they're living right now is broken, it's corrupt. If they're to be honest, they don't like it, and they're looking for an alternative. What happens if the church isn't that different? What happens, in fact, if the church, which a lot of churches are progressively doing, is trying to become looking more and more like our culture today? Then what do we have to offer a broken culture if we don't look that different? See, Peter goes on later in his letter to say that that you should live your life in such a way that people will ask you, what is the reason for the hope that you have? You are so utterly different that I like what I see in you. What is the reason for that? But if I look just like the rest of the people around me, if I have nothing different in the way of my conduct, in the way that I think, in the way that I live my life, and I look just like the average Joe who is broken and living in sin, then what do I really have to offer them? They might know you go to church, But they're not seeing that that's making really any difference. They're kind of going, great, you're losing an hour and a half on a Sunday, but it's not making any difference in your life. But what if I was to be different? What if the church was to be different? What if we lived in such a distinct, different way that people looked at us and asked for the reason of your hope? When's the last time somebody asked you that question? There's something about you I see that's different, and I want to know, when's the last time somebody asked that? Or have we looked so same that nobody can discern the difference? Remember, Jesus was different. People liked him. You can be different in a way that is positive, and we call it holiness, positive in the world in which that we live. Here's the bottom line. You can never change the world by being like the world. Jesus didn't come and be just like us and change. He was man. He came clothed in humanity. He kind of looked like the rest of the humans around him, but he didn't come to be just like the world to change the world. He came different, and because of that, the world could be made different. You never change the world by being just like the world. The world is changed by us embracing our identity as children of God. There's something about us that's different, and they want it because we make it look positively different than the world in which we live. Jesus could do that. Why can't we do the same? So this year, this year, your, your, your new thought could be, this year I could be holy. This year I can mind my mind and, and I can discern my desires and I can be holy in all that I do because God's going to help me. But there's some things you got to do. Quickly, here they are. First, you got to stop avoiding the pain that's associated with the holiness of God. You will be different. Deal with it. Okay, I know there's a little middle schooler inside of all of us that, that can't stand the idea of being different. We got to dress the same, look the same, just like our little peer group. No, 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 no. Put that middle schooler to bed. Graduate him up in the University of the Holy Spirit and say, I can be different and that can be okay. And then ask, what is it that the world has that still is influencing me? What part of it am I to be set apart from? Because there's there's something the world still holds sway over in your life. What do I need to to be set apart from? And then get a clear purpose of why you've been set apart. Why you've been set apart. Why? Why? To love this world, but not to live like it. And I know that's a hard balance because we want to draw lines and we want to say, this is what holiness looked like. It's a, it's a list of do's and don'ts. No, it's a positive influence in our world that when people see it in us, they want it. So this new year, I can be holy. You can be holy in a way that our culture likes because as their hostility increases, 
and so should our holiness so we can show the difference. Because friends, a day is coming when people are fed up with the way things are in life right now. They're tired of it. And they want to see hope. They want to see holiness. And who better to be those people than the followers of Jesus Christ? Let's stand as we conclude this service today. Lord, I pray that as we have just taken time to take a look at the holiness that that you introduced and Peter challenged us to live according to, I pray that for some there would have been a new outlook on holiness, that it's not some inachievable principle, a way of living, but it's something that because you've called us to it, you're going to enable us to do that through minding our mind, through discerning our desires, through really recognizing we can be holy in all that we do. We can be devoted to you at home, in our workplace, in our relationships, in our private alone time. We can be devoted to you to set you apart as the only one in our life. And God, that's what the world needs to see. Not a holiness that looks down at people, accusing and condemning them, but rather a holiness like you came with Jesus that had influence that was positive, that attracted people to who you were and the message that you had and the way you lived your life and the way you died, that our unholiness could be healed and we, too, could be made holy. So, Lord, we know it's a process. But I pray there'd be those today who would say, today I am, I am making this decision to mind my mind, to discern my desires, to live holy. Because in 2017, my unholy living has led to a life I don't want to relive this year. But this year, God, I desire to step into your holiness. That those around me might see the hope that I have in you. And because of that, they might want that as well. So lead us, Lord, in 2018 to know that this new year we can be holy. And in so doing, people will see that, even in a hostile culture. And they'll want that because they're so dissatisfied with where they are. So help us, Lord. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name.